Welcome to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. Walking in the Promises is a ministry of God's grace expressed through the unfolding of His Word. The following message is by our founder, Marcelo Tolopilo. The next two weeks, we're going to look at the Lord's hard road to Calvary. It was a hard road, a difficult road, one of tough love, if you will, where Jesus had a costly, difficult obedience to perform for our redemption. When you talk about the love of God to people, most people have a really vague idea of what it is, or erroneous idea of what it is. You'll often hear people say, well, how can a loving God send people who don't believe in Him to hell? And what they don't understand is that God's love is more than just sentimentality. We usually equate love with the emotion of love, the love that we have when we fall in love with our spouse or that we have for a little baby or whatever. But God's love is never divorced, and true love is never divorced from His purpose and His justice. We just sang about that. God's love is seen supremely not in sentiments towards His people. And let me tell you, God has feelings and emotions for us, just like we have feelings and emotions for those we love. I'm not saying that true love is devoid of those feelings. Absolutely not. God wants to light your passions for Him, definitely. But God's love is seen supremely not in an emotion, but in the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's love in action. We read in 1 John 4.10, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as what? An atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that was a tough row to hoe for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully aware, guys, of the horror that awaited Him on the cross. Let me read you a little description of the physical sufferings of Christ as he hung on the cross from John MacArthur's book, The Murder of Jesus. He says this, describing the physical torture of this event. He says, The cross would be lying on the ground and his feet having been extended, a large nail would be driven through the arch of one foot and then the other. Just the thought of that is horrific. As I contemplated this, I couldn't get away from how how barbaric these Romans were. And after this, his hands would be extended, allowing his knees to flex slightly as great nails would be driven through the wrist just below the heel of his hands. That's where the body right here could hold the most weight. Once the victim was nailed to the cross, the cross would then be lifted up and dropped into a hole in the ground. When the great vertical beam hit the bottom of the socket, the weight of the cross and the body crashed with a jolting impact, causing the flesh to rip and tear immediately, sending nerve impulses to make explosions in the brain. The victim is now being crucified. Slowly, Jesus would begin to sag down more and more, the weight being placed upon the nails running through his wrists. Excruciating, fiery pain would shoot up the arms and into the mind. The pressure on the median nerves would be almost beyond the ability to endure. The Lord then would try to push to relieve the pain, and so he would push with his feet, tearing and twisting the two wounds in his arches. The same thing would happen hour after hour, wrenching, twisting, torment of the body back and forth, trying to relieve one pain and then the other in his hands and his feet. It would become very impossible after a while to do any pushing upward because of the pain and the sagging put the greatest weight upon the hands. Dr. Truman Davis writes, quote, At this point, another phenomenon occurred. 
As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. You know, when you get a, a cramp in your thigh or in your leg, you immediately stretch it out because the pain is horrendous, right? Imagine just having cycles of throbbing, rending cramps and not being able at all to relieve the pain. With these cramps, the doctor says, comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, his pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it can't be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps subside. And then MacArthur goes on to say, The Lord would gasp for short breaths of air. Endure limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as the tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down the rough timber. Finally, a deep crushing pain mounts in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. This leads to death. What agony. What agony indeed. And yet, as we've talked about in the last week or so, the true suffering of the cross, dear people, was not the physical suffering. That was but the tip of the iceberg. That was really a metaphor for what Jesus truly suffered, which was a spiritual suffering, and which was so great that the anticipation of that suffering pushed Jesus to what? The brink of what? Death. Jesus almost died at the anticipation of the cross, because at that point he would be separated from God the Father, which he had never known. At that point, his holy, uh, pure, unadulterated soul would bear the sin of every man, woman, and child that would ever believe in him. And at that time, in those dark hours, the infinite, eternal wrath of God Almighty would be poured out on Jesus Christ. And he had never known anything but the love of God. And it was that aspect of the cross, the physical stuff aside, that drove Jesus to the brink of death. And so Jesus, the God and man, the all-powerful one, prayed with all his soul to what? Forgo the cross. And what I want you to understand, folks, is that Jesus was under no delusion as to the agony of the cross, right? That's why it nearly killed him, anticipating it. He was under no delusion, and he prayed, he prayed to God, Father, please allow this cup to pass from me. Drink the cup, came back the reply. God the Father said to the Son, there is no other way. In order to redeem mankind, you must drink the cup. The cup in the Old Testament is associated with suffering. Here it is death. God said to the Son, drink the cup and drink it to its dregs. Now, Amazingly, amazingly, once the Lord Jesus understood the answer of the Father, once he received that answer, perhaps it was delivered by the angel who came to minister to him, we don't know. Once he understood that the cross was absolutely necessary for the atoning of our sins, and even though he understood everything that would happen on that cross, once he got his answer, there was no one, no thing, no circumstances that could deter him from that costly, selfless obedience because of his selfless love. 
Turn to the book of the Gospel of John, if you would, for just a moment. We're going to hop around in a couple of places. John 18. This is the scene where Jesus is being arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. This is before the true agony of the cross. The Lord has just prayed through his prayer of Gethsemane and sweat great drops of blood. He's almost died from the anticipation of the cross. This is his arrest. And we find that Jesus here had the foreknowledge, guys, to escape those who came to arrest him, as he had done many, many times before, right? You find throughout the Gospels, especially in the book of John, John 10, 39, John 7, 30, 8, 59, Luke 4, 30, that Jesus eluded the grasp of the people. He escaped from the hands of the leaders. He escaped the mob. Many times, Jesus literally removed himself from being murdered. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. You'll find that's another phrase that occurs several times throughout the Gospels. Jesus was on a divine timetable, the Father's timetable. And so you'll find repeated throughout the gospel, his hour had not yet come, his time was not yet, etc., etc. John 7.30, John 8.20, John 7.6 is an example. But now that his hour had come, what I want you to understand is that he willingly, instead of escaping, submitted himself to his tormentors. Look at verse 3 in John 18. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, which was about three to 600 men, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Gospels of Luke and Mark, tell us that a multitude came to arrest Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew says a great multitude. John tells us that it was a cohort plus additional Jewish officers from the temple guard. So you're talking about several hundred people armed to the teeth come to arrest a man who didn't even carry a weapon, the Prince of Peace. It says, and there came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now notice verse 4. Jesus, therefore knowing all the things that were coming upon him, what? Escaped? Hid himself? Eluded their grasp? No, what? He went forth and said, whom do you seek? Guys, he could have escaped. He could have eluded them. And it's easy to gloss over this. The fact of the matter is, Jesus, knowing full well the agony that awaited him on the cross, willfully surrendered himself to his tormentors. He could have escaped. He also could have delivered himself by his own power, correct? And those people that came to arrest him, the gang that came to arrest him, definitely had a brush with his divine power, did they not? Verse 4, when he asked them, whom do you seek? Verse 5 tells us they answered him and said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, what? I am he. Now the personal pronoun there, the he, is provided for you. It's not in the Greek. The literal reading is I am. I believe here he's invoking his divine name. I am is the name that we translate from the Hebrew Yahweh. It is the eternal self-existent one. They came to address Jesus and he said, I am and what happened to these fellows that came to arrest him? Verse 6, when therefore he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine? We have not quite 200 people in this room. Just imagine triple, quadruple that number. All of us standing there, and all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, we're all knocked backwards? That must have been some scene. He said his name at the mere mention of his name. They drew back and fell to the ground. The amazing thing to me, you may think that that's amazing, the amazing thing to me is that he didn't say, I am, and he 
follow that up with, you are toast. <laughs> Car fire down from heaven and consume the, these rebels and not even a tinge of smoke left on his and his cloak and the cloak of the disciples. He could have delivered himself by his own divine power. They had a brush with that. He could have also been delivered by angels, correct? He had just been ministered by a powerful angel who came to minister to him. And angels are amazing beings. They're powerful, powerful beings. We have instances in the Old Testament where angels massacred whole legions of people. The firstborn of the Egyptians, remember that? That was done by an angel. One angel. Sennacherib and his Assyrian crew of 185,000 soldiers were killed by an angel there overnight. Boom. We had the 70,000 men of David when he committed the census. Remember that? And sinned against the Lord. Instead of putting his trust in the God of heaven, he put his trust in his war machine, and God came and judged him. And 70,000 men died, and the angel was stretching his hand out to Jerusalem to destroy it, and God withheld his hand. One angel. Pretty powerful beings. He could have been delivered by angels. That's why when Satan tempted him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple to prove himself God, he said, remember, his angels will what? Have charge over you, lest you strike your foot against the stone, right? The angels are protecting him. They protected the Son of Man. And that's why Jesus told Peter, when Peter cut off Malchus's ear, Malchus was the servant of the high priest, he said, Peter, don't you understand that I could call over 12 legions of angels. I could appeal to my father and he would send me literally an innumerable number of these powerful beings to deliver me. Don't you understand that? Jesus refused to be delivered by the power of angels. He certainly refused to be delivered by the insipid and weak power of men. Peter was ready to fight, as was Thomas, as they were making their way to Lazarus home and heading back into Judea where Jesus had received such a rough reception. In John chapter 11, Thomas says to the 11 other guys, it says, let's go with him that we may die with him. Remember that? They were ready to fight to the death with Jesus, but Jesus refused to be delivered by the power of men. He refused to hide himself. He refused to use his power to deliver himself for the power of angels. Why? Because Jesus understood that only a costly obedience would redeem mankind, you and me. And so he told Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me to drink, shall I not, what? Drink it. Now we've been talking about the emotions of the Lord pretty much leading up to the arrest of the Lord. And we've seen that the very emotions and the intensity of suffering leading up to the arrest and leading up to the cross was nearly effective enough to kill him. Now we can deduce that when he was actually enveloped by the horror of the cross, that suffering was infinitely greater. Wouldn't you agree? It would have to be. It's like a mother anticipating the birth of her child. I remember when Valerie was pregnant with all of our children, there was a certain anxiety that would well up inside her from time to time, and she would think, oh boy, you know, there's no getting out of this now. I'm going to have to go through labor. <laughs> First two, by the way, we had naturally, the last two, we did an epidural, and uh, she was a happy girl. <laughs> but the anticipation of the birth was nothing like labor. I don't mean to discourage. We had several 
pregnant women here. I, I don't want to discourage you. Go for the epidural. Epidural. I remember when Val had, beginning with our third one, that's when we had our first epidural, or she had the epidural. I was just sitting there going, do-do-do-do-do. But we had, our anesthesiologist was the, an, the most boring person that has ever lived. He was deadpan, laconic. He would never look at you in the eye, just mumble a word or two. And to Valerie, he was Don Ho. I mean, he, he's so winsome. And he, I bet you can dance and sing. All because he took her pain away. Where am I going with this? Somebody help me? Yeah, that's it. If Christ's soul was grieved, guys, with the anticipation of bearing our sin, how much more was his righteous soul tormented, absolutely mortified when he actually bore our sin and felt forsaken of the Father, right? But this is what I want you to understand. As Jesus suffered, as he suffered this incredible depth of pain that only infinite God could experience, he nonetheless time after time after time selflessly reached out to those around him and he warned, he prayed, he comforted, he restored, he encouraged, he saved, he cared for those he encountered on his, his painful mission. This is an amazing selfless love. And I want to look at a few windows both this week and next that show us this incredible selfless wonderful, effectual love of Jesus Christ as he went to the cross and as he hung there. So we see his selfless love really in the garden, right? He makes sure that they arrest him and he lets his men go. And he comes out to meet his captors. He doesn't hide from them. He presents himself. He does not escape and he does not deliver himself because he knows this is the Father's will. We see his selfless love in the garden, but we also see his selfless love, secondly, in his warnings to Jerusalem. His warnings to Jerusalem. We're going to go to John, or excuse me, Luke 23 in a moment. We're going to skip around a little bit. If you want to turn there ahead of time, Luke 23, I'll point you to a verse in a few moments. But he warned Jerusalem of the coming Holocaust. Jerusalem was the holy city, the city of the great king, the place where God had said, this is where I'm going to make my name dwell. This was the center of the worship of Yahweh. It, it was more than just the capital of Israel. It was her heart. It represented all of the people. It was the foundation of redemption where the Jews awaited for the Messiah to come and rule them in truth and righteousness. But tragically, at this point of history, Israel, Jerusalem, was to fully and openly reject the Messiah. And this broke his heart, didn't it? The Lord's lament in Matthew 23, 37, I'll just read it to you. It's so heart-wrenching. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Listen, today, every day, pious Jews all over the world pray in their evening prayers that God would gather the dispersed of Jerusalem and the dispersed of Israel under his caring arms. And Jesus said, I wanted to do that. I wanted to protect you and cover you with my warmth and my nurture, but you did not want it. They rejected the king. The Lord's mournful cry, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, reminds me of King David weeping over his wayward son, doesn't it? Remember when he was killed and King David was just mortified beyond 
comfort. And he kept on saying, oh, my son Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son Absalom. Here Jesus is weeping over his wayward people. Later on, as he was about to make the triumphal entry, and as the city came into view, Jesus saw it and just absolutely broke down crying. He wept for Jerusalem. Luke 19.41 reads, And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it. The Lord Jesus loved Jerusalem, guys. Sadly, as we have said, this was a case of unrequited love. Jesus Christ was not coming in to be enthroned as her king, but he was about to be crucified outside her gates. And this broke his heart and he wept. Why? Not for himself, but because her rejection, Jewish rejection, spelled the certain doom of the Jewish nation at this point. That's why he wept. He wept for them. In Matthew again, 23, 38, and 39, we read, Behold, Jesus said, Your house is being left to you, what? Desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me again until you say, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now let me just, if I may, just add a little point here. Because I think it's important. There are many people today that say that God is done with Israel nationally. That they don't fit any longer in his plans, that the promises that he made to the fathers belong now to the church. I, I can't believe that. That's a divided hermeneutic. You can't say that all the promises for good that were made to Israel are spiritual, fulfilled in the church, but all the promises for cursing are fulfilled literally in Israel. You can't do that. You also have to recognize that the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant with his people. That is, God promised to bless Israel not on the basis of their goodness and their faithfulness, but on whose? His own, Christ. And finally, if God was done with the Jews, Jesus would have said, For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says what? You shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God has a plan for his people when they will repent nationally and be restored. But the Lord prophesied their doom. Look, if you would, since you're in Luke, at Luke 19, verses 43 and 44. A very specific prophecy that Jesus issued for the immediate future. Luke 19, 43 and 44. There he speaks of Jerusalem. He says, For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And that, guys, was literally fulfilled in 70 A.D. as the Romans with ten legions of soldiers came in under Titus Vespasian and destroyed Herod's temple in the city of Jerusalem. They did a thorough job. Actually, Vespasian wanted to keep the temple. I don't know if you knew that. Because of its grandeur, because of its beauty, because of its wealth. But Josephus, the Jewish historian who recorded the siege and fall of Jerusalem, tells us that Titus, by the way, gave direct and repeated orders to his, to his soldiers to leave the temple alone. But they were overcome by such an incredible hatred, Josephus calls it a vehement inclination to fight them, the Jews, that they completely disregarded his orders and burned the whole thing to the ground and totally excavated it. In fact, 
Titus, according to Josephus, actually stood in the midst of his soldiers saying, Stop! Stop! And they would not listen to the general. Unheard of. They were almost possessed by a demonic hatred for the Jews, for the temple, and for their capital. They picked the whole thing clean, gutted it by fire, and leveled it to the ground. And even though some of these great, great stones from Herod's temple measured 12 by 12 by 40, and were literally hundreds of tons each, they were knocked down and pushed off the foundations like Legos. And today there is literally not one stone left upon another of the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. They're being excavated at the foot of the temple. There's not one stone, guys. And we're reminded of this every time the Jewish, the Temple Mount Faithful, I think they're called, it's a Jewish organization dedicated to reestablishing the Third Temple. Every year they come up, I believe it's on the 9th of Av, because so many terrible things have happened for Israel on the 9th of Av. They, they come up with this stone, this cornerstone for the new temple, and the Israeli authorities, the army, won't let them do that, put it up there, because that would send the Arab world and the Palestinians into a frenzy. And we would have World War III. There is not one stone up there left of the temple. When Jesus made that prophecy, people were surely thinking, it must be figurative, because how can you remove these stones? Yet that's exactly what happened. The destruction was extensive. Josephus says that the destruction of the city and of the temple was, quote, so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing to make those that came thereafter believe that it had ever been inhabited. Totally thorough. Now, needless to say, if this kind of destruction was leveled against the structures of Jerusalem, can you imagine the bloodbath that ensued against its inhabitants, right? The Romans, just as Jesus said, surrounded the city. They would not let anything in or out. Starvation quickly took hold before they breached the wall. And 1.1 million Jews died in this endeavor. 1.1 million. You say, well, Jerusalem was not that big of a city. It's rather a small thing as far as acreage. How could there be that many people there? Well, the Romans came during the Passover. So there were pilgrims from all over the world burgeoning the population. Josephus tells us that when they finally breached the wall and came into the city, these guys were so angry with the Jews. The slaughter was so great, it was apocalyptic. He says that it actually, the, the blood flow was so heavy in some places that it quenched the flames of the fire set by the Roman invaders. That's how bloody this was. And Jesus, seeing this holocaust didn't weep for himself, but warned those who would hear his prophetic words of the great evil, the great judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem. And so in chapter 23, verse 27, we read, And there were following him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem. That's a term of affection. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. Stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Listen, no Jewish woman would ever say that in her right mind, especially in ancient times. Yet Jesus was right. The Lord, listen to me, was physically sapped of strength. The last 48 hours he had not slept, he had not eaten, he had been beaten times without number. The blood loss alone made him weak. The emotions of the moment made him weak. 
He was publicly humiliated, sapped of strength, abandoned by his closest friends, and yet he had the presence of mind to not focus on his own pain, but turn to those who would hear him and say, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and be warned. Be warned. Some 36 years later, when Christian Jews who lived in Jerusalem heard that the Romans were coming, remembered the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and they fled and they were saved from Roman genocide. In his great divine concern over his people whom he loved, the Lord focused not on his own misery, great as it was, but on the welfare of his people. That's selfless love, guys. We can also see his selfless love not only in the garden, not only in his warnings to Jerusalem, but also in his compassion for our rejecting generation. Look at verse 33 of Luke chapter 23. His compassion for a rejecting generation. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, verse 35. And the people stood by looking on. Now the sentiments of the people are given to us in the attitude of the leaders. And it says, and even the rulers were sneering at him. That is, the rulers, like everybody else, they put their finger up in the wind to see which way the wind was blowing. They took a pole all the time. They saw the people turn against Jesus. So now they had the freedom to sneer him. When Jesus was popular, they feared them, right? They feared the people, and they kept an arm's length. Now that the people had turned against Jesus, they were emboldened, brave men as they were, to sneer at Jesus. And they said to him, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Here we see, guys. The leadership of the nation in partnership with the people to put God's Christ to death on the cross. And this is so amazingly tragic. Because since the writing of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the penning of the prophets and the writings, Israel had awaited the coming of the Messiah, a prophet like Moses, who would lead the people in truth and righteousness. And that proved to be Jesus Christ. The, the prophets, Moses, clearly pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. And any serious student of the Bible, the Old Testament, had to come to that conclusion. That's why when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, remember, Jesus called him the teacher of Israel. He was a scholar. And he came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are from God because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. He knew the Messianic miracles. The eyes of the blind being opened and the lame walking and the dead rising. He put two and two together biblically. The things that Jesus did before their eyes, the message that Jesus preached in their hearing, all pointed to him as the Messiah, the awaited one. In fact, the prophecies of Daniel clearly pointed to this time as the coming of the Messiah. Did you know that? In Daniel chapter 9, the great prophetic scheme of Daniel. We're going to have to study that book sometime. It's a fascinating book. Great narrative. And then you get into chapters 9 and, and following. And there's a great prophetic scheme of all history. All right? Past and present. And according to the prophetic scheme of Daniel, there was a beginning time when the clock started ticking for the coming of Messiah. And there was an ending time. And the beginning time when the Jews could start counting the days until the coming of the Messiah was from the decree, Daniel said, to rebuild Jerusalem in its completeness. 
And the only decree that fits those parameters is the decree of Artaxerxes Longimus in 445 B.C. Nehemiah, I think, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. He gave the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in its entirety. And Daniel said that from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the prince, Messiah, there would be 483 years. And from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the 483 years ticked off was concluded, guess when? At the triumphal entry. When Jesus publicly, for the first time, admitted to all of the Jewish nation that he was the Messiah of Israel. And remember the people were saying, they were singing the Hallel Psalms, they were saying, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the son of David. Remember that? And the leaders approached Jesus and said, tell your people to shut up, they're saying you're the Messiah. And what did Jesus say? If they shut up, what? The stones will cry out. Why? Because the prophetic ticker had stopped. The Messiah had come. And if they would have studied their Old Testament, they would have realized that this is the Messiah. And he fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. I love that. That her Messiah, Israel's Messiah, would come endowed with salvation, humbly mounted on the foal of a donkey. And Jesus did that through the eastern gate. In other words, guys, all the prophetic indicators pointed to this man at this time as being the Messiah of Israel. And yet, as the Lord Jesus stated in Luke 19.44, Israel did not recognize the time of her visitation. The nation rejected him outright. Far from heralding him as the king, their demand before Pilate in Luke 23.18 was away with this man. Verse 21, crucify, crucify him. Verse 23, but they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail. They were in a mad frenzy. And then the most chilling words from this rejecting generation are recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. You don't need to turn there. This is a scene where Pilate was pleading with the people to release Jesus. Remember that? And he, of course, had the power to release him, but he gave in to the mob mentality. He was a coward. He had every legal and moral obligation to release Jesus Christ. He refused, so he turned to the people and in mock innocence said, I am innocent of this man's blood, which he wasn't. He was a coward. See to that yourselves. And the people answered him. This is some of the most chilling words in all of the Bible, guys. They said this, His blood be on us and on our what? children. The people, the leadership, this generation were guilty of the blood of Christ by their own admission, guys. Is that anti-Semitic? No, it's not. I'm Semitic. I can't be anti-me. I'm not anti-Semitic. Truth is truth. What was the Lord's response to these people? Was it, okay, I'm taking it now, but you just wait. You just wait until I come back. And I'm coming back and I'm mad. Or you just wait until my father gets a hold of y'all. Or you just wait until the Romans besiege you. Then we'll see who laughs last. Is that how the Lord responded? No. The Lord Jesus responded with a prayer, didn't it? In his compassion, he prayed for their eventual redemption. Luke 23, 34. This is beautiful. But Jesus was saying, and the idea here is that he was saying it and saying it and saying it continuously. This was his prayer as he hung on the cross for hours. 
Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Father, please forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He didn't pray for God to curse them. He became a curse of God for them. Instead, he prayed for God to shower them with his mercy of salvation. Forgive and salvation here are synonymous. You say, well, did that prayer take? Did these people get saved? Did they have an altar call and people came forward at the cross? No. You have to understand here, guys, that the crowd that showed up to see the crucifixion of Jesus were not drawn by the virtue of Jesus at this point. They were not even drawn by the potential promise of free food and medical care. They came to observe a ghastly ritual of torture. There's something sick in the heart of man that delights in lurid exhibitions, right? And that's why historically public executions, beheadings, hangings, crucifixions, etc. have been done in public. Sure, as an example to some, but because they're done in public because man loves that kind of stuff. They want to see the gore. And they showed up to watch a ghastly display of torture. And there was an ugly, twisted, angry festivity to it all, as we saw with the crowd that was before Pilate. However, however, and this is amazing to me, as many of these same people observed the Lord Jesus Christ dying, and His nobility, and His grace, and the attending signs, I believe that many began to recognize, as did the centurion, as did the thief on the cross, that they were murdering an innocent man, and their gaiety, their mirthfulness, all of a sudden turned to mourning. They began to mourn. Look at verse 48. This is a fascinating verse to me. Verse 48. And all the multitudes, this is not a reference to his disciples, they're identified for us in verse 49. Who are the multitudes? Those who came together for this spectacle. That's what drew them. They wanted to see Jesus bleed and die like a piece of meat. And all the multitudes who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return what? Beating their breasts. What's that a sign of? That's mourning and repentance. That's guilt. You, see, you still see this on CNN when they talk about the Middle East and who blew whoever up, right? People beat their chest, beat their breasts. You know what I think this is? I think this is God the Father beginning to answer the prayer of God the Son as He hung on the cross. He was in essence praying, Father, don't make them the objects of your fierce wrath. Make me the object of your fierce wrath. Pour that out on me and pour out your salvation on these people. Is that selfless love? I believe God was tenderizing their hard hearts with grief and pain and guilt. You know, grief and pain and guilt are a good servant when they lead us to God. They were broken and they had no remedy at this point. They just went away thinking, we just killed the Messiah. Oh, man. Say, did these people get saved? I mean, they went away guilty, but were they recipients of salvation? I believe many of them were. I believe God wounded their hard hearts here at the crucifixion of His Son. And while that, that wound was still tender, He reopened that wound by the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. 
That's, a, that's when the Lord birthed His church. The Spirit came and emboldened Peter to preach an amazing sermon. You don't need to turn there. Let me just give you the upshot of it. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 44. But he laid the blame right on them. He said, you crucified the Lord of glory. You killed the Messiah. But guess what? He's risen. He's alive. So get right with him. What was their response? Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And the result of Peter's preaching is found in verse 41. So then those who had received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, all Jews and proselytes. I have no doubt, guys, that many of the ones who left Calvary beating their breasts were torn open by the Holy Spirit-empowered preaching of Peter and got saved on this day and in the subsequent days that followed. And God the Father answered the prayer of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. Let me tell you, another group that was targeted by this marvelous love of Jesus Christ, I guess you could call it an effectual love, real briefly, and that is the leadership of Israel. The people that bore the greatest burden of guilt for the rebellion of the people and the murder of Jesus, God made the objects of his effectual love. Certainly we could say that of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of Israel, who became disciples of Jesus. Also a neophyte Pharisee by the name of Shaul, Saul, who later became what? The Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary to have ever lived. But you know another group that was targeted in the leadership of Israel by the effectual, amazing love of God and Christ? They were the anti-supernaturalists of the day, belonged largely to the party of the Sadducees. They were, by and large, corrupt, but they loved the prestige of the office. Isn't that sickening? People who love to be called priest or pastor or rabbi or whatever, but they deny the power of God and don't preach the gospel. They were the enemies of Christ. You know what I'm talking about? The priests. The priests. Jesus died at what time? Three o'clock, Right? right as the priests were busily getting ready for Shabbat and on that Passover day slaying thousands of lambs. And all of a sudden when Jesus surrendered his spirit willfully, what happened to the temple veil? It was torn from top to bottom. And Josephus tells us that it was 15 by 30 feet as far as height and width and four inches wide and, and horses, teams of horses tied to each end could not rip it apart. Now, do you think that the rending of that veil had an impact on those priests? Do you think that it would cause them to maybe rethink their position on Jesus? Or about the supernatural? Listen to Acts 6-7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Isn't that wonderful? Let me tell you something, guys. God's love... The effectual, wonderful, selfless love of Jesus Christ finds its target. I don't care if you're a cynical, agnostic, religious guy or non-religious person. If you believe in God or don't believe in God, God loves you and you need to deal with it. And God's love will find you. Have you found it? I guess one of the things that I love most about the great, selfless 
effectual love of God through Jesus Christ is that it has cut through the centuries and unbelief and sin and incredible circumstances to find me and to find you. God loves us with this tremendous love of Jesus Christ that was selfless, that was pure and effectual, that found its target. You know what? I think it would be very easy for all of us to to contemplate that and be moved emotionally by it, and I pray that it does. Maybe that's where you need to start. Maybe your heart is cold, and you need to experience afresh the grace of God, and you to just respond to Him with your emotions. That's wonderful. You do that. But God's love for us was expressed through a costly obedience, the obedience of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He expects us to love Him in return like that too. He expects us to love Him, not just with our emotions, as wonderful as that is, but with a hard, costly love. And for you, maybe that's giving up a pet sin that you have nurtured in your life that just kind of hangs there. You just don't want to deal with it because it's too painful and you want to just push it aside. Maybe the hard thing for you to do would be to love an unlovely spouse or child who doesn't act very becoming. Maybe God is asking you to love them sacrificially. Maybe the tough road of love in Jesus for you would be forgiving someone who has wronged you or returning an act of kindness to someone who has acted towards you in an evil manner. Maybe it's submitting to uh, an unrighteous boss. Or maybe it's making a decision based on principle, biblical principle, that will hurt you professionally and financially. Only you can answer that question. God wants you to return the kind of love that He has given you. We will never be able to match the matchless love of God, but He asks us to love Him in return with a difficult love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just so amazed and grateful at the obedient love of Jesus, His selfless love. How He, in the midst of great agony and pain, did not think of Himself primarily, but others. Those whom He came to save, both His friends and enemies. Those who were mocking Him and sneering at Him, who were who were yelling their hellish curses upon him, yet he, in turn, followed the road of costly love and prayed for their salvation. And indeed, you saved them through his sacrifice, many of them. I pray, Lord God, that we would reciprocate, that we would return that love to you, because, Lord, that's what you deserve. And that truly, Lord, is what we long to give you in our hearts. Give us wisdom, Lord, to know what is that costly road of obedience that you want us to take and give us the courage and the power to follow it. We pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. If you would like to learn more about our ministry or invite Marcelo to speak, visit us online at witp.org.